had dyed her hair for a little bit, but no. Now I'll pay for that later. <laughs> well, it's glorious to be together. And what a beautiful passage of scripture today to examine. Let's, uh, let me, I'll tell you what, let's stand together as I read the scripture, our voice of prayer, and then we'll dive into God's holy word. John chapter 19 Verse 31 through 42. The word of God. The Jews, therefore, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they be taken away. But the soldiers came and broke the legs, the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they, they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation for Passover, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there, the word of God. Blessed Father, we thank you for thy gift to thy church of the gospel accounts. We thank you for this blessed gift to the church, last but not least, of the gospel of John. And we thank you for the testimony of this puzzling in how John frames it, but clearly significant to thee. Now, Master, we lift up prayer, for we this week have experienced the death of Dana Ford's mother. We also recognize with joy Debbie's testimony of her father coming off hospice, 
And yet we also pray for Kathy and for others who are struggling with illness, sickness, many here who are suffering in one way or another. Master, breathe your spirit upon us, upon them, and let your peace fill and permeate and saturate not just their hearts but their minds also, that they have a peace beyond understanding. Now speak today through this glorious scripture we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we arrive at John 19 at the conclusion of our Lord Jesus' life. And it's good to reflect on the environmental, the relational, the uh, religious events that have just transpired. Luke tells us three hours of darkness from 12 to 3 p.m. have just ended. For the sun was obscured, Jesus dies, the sun reappears. With terrifying impact on the priesthood, you can only imagine the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Imagine. <laughs> Ever kicked an anthill? Imagine. The multitude who had come for this spectacle returned to Jerusalem, beating their breasts, not a celebration, but horror of an ominous, even calamitous portent. Matthew records that the earth shook, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had died were raised, but awaited his resurrection when they left the tombs. Now that's an interesting, think about that, 40 days they stayed, but they're risen. And then entering the holy city, appearing to many, God literally washing Jerusalem with a tsunami of empirical evidence, undeniable empirical evidence of the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> wow. Well, verse 30. Consider first how verse 30 closes. That is last week's verse, but we did not cite this then. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is here the thought of a peaceful death in which he entrusts himself to his loving Father in heaven. His words in Luke tell us, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So here is a clear suggestion of voluntariness. It was not taken. It was not forced on him. In fact, he, he, he said in John 10, the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. So he bowed his head gave up his spirit, and may well reflect Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul unto death. 
Well, 31 through 33, the, the hypocrisy of the Jews knows no bounds. For the 12th hour approached, our 6 p.m., the bodies are still hanging on the trees, the crosses, and an abhorrence in their eyes. For such desecration of the Holy Land could not be on a Sabbath day. <laughs> and this was a high day, Passover, so the bodies had to be removed. And the Jews were thus insistent that they break their legs, that the Romans come. Victims of this cruel form of execution would slightly ease the strain on their chest because their whether tied or, in the case of Christ, nailed, their body is hanging on spikes. Their feet, one atop the other, is set on a piece of wood with a spike driven through. And while the trauma of the pain would be horrific enough, the body's natural instinct to breathe would cause an effort to push up and find the ability to breathe. But when the legs were broken, this ended. For then there was a greater constriction of the chest with death, and additionally the shock of having a heavy mallet shatter their legs would hasten death through trauma, blood loss, and lack of failure of respiration. So while the Jews did not want their land defiled by dead men hanging on trees, notice they had no problem defiling their land by murdering their Messiah. Even so, today, blind hypocrites go through exterior motions and ceremonies while harboring bitterness and unforgiveness within the heart. And I encourage you, as a pastor who loves you, if you are not ever watchfully suspicious over your heart, you are probably blind to what is grievously unsavory to Jesus Christ. That's wisdom. The soldiers therefore broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Christ, but seeing Christ, he's dead. There's no point in shattering his legs. Calvin says, we thus are constrained to ascribe this to the secret purpose of God, that the death of Christ was brought on much more rapidly than expected, and that this prevented his legs from being broken. Hmm. The death of Christ was brought on much more. Christ ended his life, yielded his soul unto death in his timing. Verses 34 through 35, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who had seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. <laughs> Time out. Now you look at what John says immediately following this 
record of empirically seeing blood and water emerge from the side of Christ. And John goes to this elaborate threefold, I'm really telling you the truth, there must be something here. Well, doctrine, per verse 34, briefly. Calvin says the Apostle John takes so much pain to explain that blood flowed along with water as if he relating, were relating something unusual contrary to the order of nature. But he had quite a different intention, namely to accommodate his narrative to the passages of Scripture that he immediately follows, subjoins, and more especially that believers might infer from it what he states elsewhere, that Christ came with water and with blood, 1 John 5, 6. By these words, he means that Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing. For on the one hand, forgiveness of sins and justification, and on the other hand, the sanctification of the soul were prefigured in the law by these two symbols, sacrifices and washings. In sacrifices, blood atoned for sins and was the ransom for the appeasing of the wrath of God. Washings were the tokens of true holiness and the remedies for taking away uncleanness and removing the pollutions of the flesh. End quote. One more statement by Calvin. That faith may no longer rest on these elements, John declares that the fulfillment of both of these graces is in Christ. 1 John 5. And here he presents to us a visible token, historical, empirical record of the same fact. So Calvin continues, and let's elaborate briefly on this before we return to explanation, landing finally upon doctrine and application woven together. Calvin says, the sacraments which Christ has left to his church have the same design for the purification and sanctification of the soul, which consists in newness of life, Romans 6, pointed out to us in baptism and the Lord's Supper, is the pledge of a perfect atonement. But they differ widely from the ancient figures of the law, for they exhibit Christ as being physically present, whereas the figures of the law pointed out that he was still at a distance. For this reason, this is Calvin, I do not object to what Augustine says, that our sacraments flowed from Christ's side. 
For when baptism and the Lord's Supper lead us to Christ's side, that by faith we may draw from it as from a fountain, Zechariah 13. What they represent then, are we truly washed from our pollutions and renewed to a holy life? And then do we truly live before God, redeemed from death and delivered from condemnation? Hmm. Now that was a quick, we'll have more doctrine later. As John, I hope you catch this, John builds his theology in the epistle on what he records in John 19. The theology of John 19 is 1 John 5. Back to explanation. Observe, let me sit down. Observe that John says these things took place to fulfill the scripture. And quotes from Exodus 12, Numbers 9, where Moses spoke concerning the Passover lamb. And when the Passover sacrifice was instituted, the command was given that the Passover lamb could not have one broken bone. Why? Because that lamb had to be unblemished, perfection as close as possible to say something about the eventual sacrifice which would be absolute perfection, capable of atoning for the sins of all those given him by the Father. And while what was instituted under Moses under Egyptian oppression spoke of the deliverance from Egypt, it also exhibited the future spiritual deliverance of the church. And so Paul applies to Christ the rule which Moses lays down about eating this lamb. This is 1 Corinthians. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened, sanctified. For Christ our Passover, hear it? Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast. Celebrate the feast. Not with old leaven. What's that? An old established pattern of sin not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth <laughs> in a way it'd be a lot easier if we just had to bring unleavened bread but what we're bringing before this table today are unleavened hearts hmm so Christ was not only the pledge of our redemption, but also the price of it. Because in him we see accomplished what was formerly exhibited to the ancient peoples under the figure of the Passover feast. Calvin says, Thus also the Jews are reminded that they ought to in Christ seek the substance of all those things which the law prefigured but did not actually accomplish. Hear that again. 
Thus also the Jews are reminded that they ought to seek in Christ the substance of those things which the law prefigured but did not actually accomplish. Apply this to your eschatology. It does not make any sense to see temple worship reestablished because that was but a shadow of Christ. Any reestablishment of temple worship of any of the Mosaic law is not of God because Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of all those types and shadows. Verse 37 references Zechariah 12, which we read, but is quoted in Revelation 1. Listen to Revelation 1, 4 through 7. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which who are who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be all men. Revelation 1, 4 through 7. Now Calvin raises the question, which has big import on today's evangelicalism again. Does God promise to the Jews repentance to salvation, or does he threaten that he will come as an avenger? For my own part, when I closely examine the passage, I think that it includes both. This is Calvin. That out of a worthless, unprincipled nation, God will gather a remnant for salvation, and by his dreadful vengeance he will show to despisers who it is with whom they have to deal. God declares that they will not pass unpunished, for he will at length maintain his cause. Hmm. There's much there, much there. Paul gets to it in Romans 9 through 11 also. But verses 38 through 42, John tells of two men who buried Christ. Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph is the one described as a disciple, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. But, but he goes to Pilate and asks for permission to take away the body. Nicodemus comes also as Joseph removes the body, no doubt with the help of servants. Nicodemus comes with a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. The expense was great. But it was the custom 
to put spices of this kind in between the sheets which were wound around the body and the quantity would not have been excessive. Calvin points to the fact, and the record stands, that large quantities of spices were used in royal burials. So John may be hinting, giving an adumbration in the direction of the kingship of Christ. But now ponder this, and this trajectory is out of Calvin's thought, because it is of interest. It is of interest that the disciples who had openly followed Jesus ran away. While the effect of Jesus' death on these two secret disciples was exactly the opposite. <laughs> now, when they had nothing at all to gain by affirming their discipleship, their following of Jesus, they come right out into the open. And thus these men gave Jesus a decent burial according to Jewish custom. They provided for a virtual embalming without mutilation of the flesh. First prepared the body by wrapping it with linen cloths, bandaged like strips, putting spices between the folds. Calvin observes, I say nothing of the great and evident danger which they must have incurred, but the most important point is that they did not scruple to place themselves in a state of perpetual warfare with their own nation. This was not a politically correct act to commit. It is certain, therefore, that this was effected by a heavenly impulse so that they, who through fear did not render the honor due him while he was alive, now run to his dead body as if they had become new men. And amazingly, here is striking proof that his death was more quickening, more enlivening than his life. He's more than just a great moral teacher. He's more than just a great prophet. Through his death, Holy Spirit power has been released. Now, application. These two men, as a testimony of their faith, not only took Christ's body down from the cross at great hazard to themselves, but then carried it to the grave. Our slothfulness will be base and shameful if now that he reigns in heavenly glory, we withhold from him the confession of our faith. That's Calvin. How is this with you? How is this with you? Because some of us are facing decisions, crossroads, puzzlements. Am I willing to lose face, willing to lose position, to lose title, to lose income for the sake of Christ, out of loyalty to Christ my King? Some of us are or will face choices of where our fealty, 
our faith, our trustworthiness is, is Christ as my God and King, my highest loyalty, or temporal things of this world. And I say this to myself. Does this discomfort you? If it does, you need to pray. Because I will not bend the knee to Caesar. I bow before Christ only. Calvin says, we should always consider what the Lord commands and how far he bids us advance. And there is the plea for wisdom from the Lord on some issues that some of us are facing relationally, job-wise, you name it. But he who stops in the middle of the course shows that he does not trust in God. And he who sets a higher value on his own life than on the command of God is without excuse. I'm just quoting Calvin. <laughs> yes, dear believer, look well upon the honorable description given Joseph. Secret believer. And this honorable mention John records, breathed out by the Spirit, is at a time when Joseph was exceedingly timid and did not venture to profess his faith before the world. And we see from this how graciously tender God is toward his children. And with what fatherly tenderness he forgives our offenses. So I ask, what is your view of the Heavenly Father? What is my view of my Father in heaven? Do I see him as a hard man, determined to make my life miserable? Been there, done that. You understand that such a view is completely false or the scripture lies. You understand that. And furthermore, you understand that your view of the Father will greatly affect those around you. It has to. Dear child of the Heavenly Father, believe Christ and not his strokes. Believe Christ and not his strokes. Thy joy depends not on thy happenstance, thy circumstances, but upon Christ. Joy looks to heavenly gifts received and yet to be received. So what am I looking at? Where do I pitch my tent? <laughs> my choice of where I place my eyes, of where I camp my thoughts, directly impacts my joy or lack thereof. I am not speaking theoretically to you. I'm speaking as one who has learned through the stroke 
that this is truth. Well, doctrine and application. We have read First John 5, 1 through... Oh, how far did I have you go, Scott? Eight. Let's turn to First John 5. And we'll pick up with 6 and read through 13. Because now I attempt to give you theology of John 19, doctrine with some very obvious application. 1 John 5, 6. This is the one, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater for the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his son. Think of the baptism. The one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. You say, what's the witness? And the witness is this that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal, a bubbling flow of water from within life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Clearly, by the words water and blood, the Apostle John alludes to the ancient rites of the law and the comparison he makes is not only would we know that the law of Moses was abolished by the coming of Christ, for Christ is the fulfillment of all those types and figures, but that we may also seek in Christ the fulfillment of those things which the Mosaic ceremonies typified, which they pointed forward in time, for they were but a type. And while there were various kinds of ceremonies, Yet under these two, the apostle, the water and the blood, the apostle denotes the whole perfection of holiness and righteousness. For by water all filth was washed away, so that men might come before God pure and clean. And by blood was expiation made to satisfy the wrath of God, and a pledge given of full reconciliation with God. Calvin says, yet the law only 
adumbrated, scarcely gave a hint at, ex by external symbols, what was to be really and fully performed by Messiah. Now, here in 1 John 5, in Calvin's commentary, he makes an important observation. Listen very carefully. I certainly think that John sets forth here, 1 John 5, 6-8, the fruit and effect of what he recorded in gospel history, John 19. Note his words. The fruit and effect. It happened through God's purpose that Christ's side became the fountain of blood and water, Zechariah 13, in order that the faithful may know that cleansing of which the ancient baptisms were types is found in him, and that they might know that what all the sprinklings of blood formerly pre-signified was fulfilled. That's Calvin. Listen to it again. God's purpose was that Christ's side would become the fountain of blood and water in order that the faithful may know that what the ancient baptisms typified, cleansing, is found in him, and that they might know what all the sprinklings of blood formerly typified now were found in him. And by the phrase, and it is the Spirit who bears witness, John shows how God's children know and feel the power of Christ, even when the Spirit renders them certain. So Calvin says, by testimonies abundantly strong and clear, he proves that it is he who had been formerly promised Jesus was, is the Messiah, inasmuch as water and blood being the pledges and effects, not effects, effects of salvation, really testify that he had been sent by God. But he adds a third witness, a third witness, verse 8, my verse 8. ESV adjusts the verses, but not the words. He adds a third witness, the Holy Spirit, who yet holds the first place. For without him, the water and blood would have flowed without any benefit. For it is he who seals on our hearts the testimony of the water and blood. It is he who by his power makes the fruit of Christ's death to come to us. Yes, he makes the blood shed for our redemption to penetrate into our hearts. Or to say all in one word, he makes Christ with all his blessing to become ours. And Calvin cites then Romans 1.4. Having said that Christ by his resurrection, Paul, Paul in Romans 1.4, having said that Christ by his resurrection manifested, showed forth himself to be the Son of God, 
adds through the sanctification of the Spirit. For whatever signs of divine glory may shine forth in Christ, they would yet be obscure to us and escape our vision were not the Holy Spirit to open for us the eyes of faith. Now, readers, Calvin says this, but listen to it because it's so pastoral. Readers may now understand quite why John added the Spirit as a witness together with the water and the blood. Because it is the peculiar office of the Spirit to cleanse our consciences by the blood of Christ and to cause the cleansing effected by it to be efficacious, to be effective through the process of sanctification. It is always the ministry of the Spirit to awaken, to enliven, to regenerate by divine power the sinner, granting faith in Jesus, which is though always attended by conviction of sin, and sinfulness with consequent guilt and shame. And through this heavenly ministration within the soul, the sinner becomes aware of the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. The sinner becomes aware of the wondrous joy of forgiveness. And I can't think of a better description than Pilgrim's Progress. When Pilgrim comes to the top of the hill and there he, he sees a cross, he, he somewhat ascended, and upon that place stood a cross and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to tumble till it came to the sepulchre, the mouth of the sepulchre, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. Then Christian stood still, looking, wondering, wondering that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He looked and looked again, even till the springs in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre, Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. <sighs> Dear brethren, it is the Spirit who blesses the now faith-filled sinner 
with an awareness of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And oh, joy that brings. And I pray you've tasted that joy. The Spirit bears witness in the believer's heart to the blood and forgiveness that his blood brings. And the Spirit bears witness also to the water. Or in the interpretation of Calvin, Christ's side became the fountain of blood and water in order that the faithful may know that cleansing of which the ancient baptisms were a type. Yes, even the furnishings of the tabernacle and temple demonstrated this. For between the altar of burnt offerings where blood sacrifice was made and the holy place, was the laver, the basin of water, in which the priest, having made blood sacrifice, would then wash before entering into ministry as a priest. Or in the grammar of the gospel, the son was sent to achieve the grand indicative through his blood, and the Spirit was subsequently sent to achieve the great imperatives of the gospel through virtual baptisms or washings of the Spirit, cleansing the justified sinner through sanctification. So the Spirit's testimony of regeneration through the blood of Christ, followed by his lifelong ministry of sanctification, preparing us for heaven, the water of cleansing and the blood of forgiveness. And his testimony has as his goal, verse 13, 1 John 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants his children to have assurance of salvation. And it is these three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Father, I pray that you'll take these deep waters, deep truths from thy apostle and sink them into our hearts that we may have the joy that Pilgrim found at the foot of the cross, that we might find the continual washings through the Spirit, the washings of his presence, sanctifying us, and thus receive the testimony of the Spirit, of the blood and the water. In Christ's name, amen.